Yeah, you know, I've really been changed as I've been more involved with Carrick's over the years and gone into different prison ministries. I've been to the men's facility numerous times and different ones, and this is the first time with the ladies' facility. You know, and, and unfortunately, so often that community, whether it's men, men or women, it is a forgotten community. You know, we might hear about them. They might be in the news, you know, while they're going through their court case and whatever. But then once they're placed in incarceration someplace, we just forget about them. And some people are there for many, many years. Um, I've met some men that have been there 30, 40 years out of a life sentence and have no hope of ever getting out. And uh, so I, I just thank the Lord that we're given an opportunity to go in and be Jesus to them for a little bit. And uh, so thank you for your prayers. And if you want to get involved with that, I encourage you to get involved with Carex. It's a great organization, men and women. And uh, it's a really good organization for uh, outside weekends like we've had the last couple weekends and also in the prison. We've got a couple of Carex people right here with us that were there at the last weekend. So nice to have you guys today. So anyway, Pastor Rip, thank you for praying. Jackie and Tom, thank you for wonderful worship. So we're going to continue on the book of Philippians. We're moving into chapter 3 today. And um, Paul is beginning to talk about some things that I think we all need a little help in. And that is that we are to have confidence in the Lord. And where does our confidence come from? Remember, at this point in time, remember where Paul is. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, but he's imprisoned in Rome. And he's... I think he's there probably in house arrest, but it's still imprisonment. And it's been a couple years or so, and he is limited in what he can do because of his imprisonment. So Paul, when he speaks of joy, which really what this book is about, the book, the book of Philippians is a, is a book about joy. When he speaks about joy and confidence in the Lord, he has good reason for us to listen to him because he's undergoing tribulation and persecution, even as he's writing these words. So he has every reason and we have every right to listen to what he has to say. And the confidence that he has, we want to know where it's coming from. Where is this confidence that he's coming from that, that he, that we're going to speak about today? You know, and I will say many people go to church, learn all they can about God and they can acquire a vast amount of information about God. And that's good. I'm not saying anything bad about that. I think church is awesome. And I think we should go to church as often as we can and to learn. But I find interesting, though, that even though that people have this vast amount of knowledge about God, yet many of them have no relationship with God. They have no relationship. They have lots of knowledge but maybe not such so much relationship. And, and I find it that it's interesting that people that can have lots of knowledge, when they have the struggles in life, when they have the hard things of life come at them, they have nothing to fall back on because knowledge is good, but without relationship, we really have nothing to fall back on. It's that personal relationship that we have with God that really gives us that confidence So can I say this? Can I say that knowledge of God and, and relationship with God are different things? They're different things. And, and maybe the problem is many people don't realize it. They think as long as I know God, I know about him, that that's all there is to him. And I think what Paul is trying to tell us is that there is no reason to think that. I mean, when we start putting our confidence in our flesh, in our mind, in our intellect... We have no relationship with Christ. Therefore, we have no joy. 
we have no lasting peace. We have no lasting joy. And so I think it's a remarkable statement for Paul to make that he can draw the line between knowing about Christ and really knowing him that makes the difference in a person's life. And maybe we don't see this to be a big deal, but I'm going to tell you it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I can know all about somebody. I can read everything about somebody. I can read an audio autobiography of somebody, but until I can look him in the eye and have a relationship, I really don't know that person. Amen? I can read the Bible many times a year, but not know God. I mean, I can do that, but if I don't have the Holy Spirit living in me, there's no connection, there's no foundational truth that really resides in me or gives me revelation knowledge other than the fact of what I read in a book. And that's what Paul's talking about today. So our text is a relatively long text. It's Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and it's the first 11 verses. So we're going to read this out of the New Living Translation today. Paul says, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason to have confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, and I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I even harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as all, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteousness through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, there is a lot to work, a lot of words here, a lot of thoughts here in this passage. And I pray that you just give us the wisdom to, to glean out what you would have us for us today. That you would just help us to understand that confidence comes from relationship with you. Yes, knowledge is important because we have to know that we're speaking truth. But God, so much more is the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to make it real. So I pray that you just uh, be with us in this Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 Paul says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> and then he says, I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard, safeguard your faith. So Paul begins this relatively long discussion by reminding the church that they are to rejoice in the Lord. And what does that mean? That means that our joy in the Lord is a mark 
of their relationship with him. You rejoice in who you know through relationship. And we've talked about joy in the past as being one thing that gives us the strength to live a life above the heartaches of life. The joy of the Lord is my strength, the Bible says, right? But remember this. Joy is not just happiness. And in fact, you don't even have to be happy to be joyful, even though it's helpful. (laughs) Even though it's a lot easier to be joyful when you're happy, you don't have to be happy to have joy. Because joy is the everlasting, what is it? It's the everlasting understanding that you're loved and that you're cherished as a daughter or a son of the Most High. That God the Father in heaven loves you, he cherishes you, and if you've given your heart to Jesus, you are not just a loved creation, you are a loved child. And with that, we have a promise of eternal life. And with that comes a promise of eternal joy. What's the major difference between happiness and joy? We talked about this a week or two ago. What's the major difference? One, where it comes from, right? Where it comes from, happiness comes from our happenstance. Our circumstances in life can give us our happiness. And at the same time, those circumstances can take away our happiness in a heartbeat, right? That's number one, where it comes from. And the the other major difference is how long it lasts. Happiness can be really powerful, but it can also be very fleeting, right? If my home team won the game last night, I can be happy. <laughs> if I've got a good golf game going, I can be happy. I got If I've got a good fish on the line, I can be happy. But if I lose the fish, what happens? Bummer. <laughs> I've lost my happiness. <laughs> I, I shank a shock. I lost my happiness, right? But joy isn't depending upon my situation. Joy comes from a much deeper place. And sometimes we confuse the two. And we forget about where joy comes from. And that's why Paul says, I, get ne- I never get tired of reminding you of this great promise. Because it's good to be reminded. Let me ask you a question. How often do you need to be, do you need to be reminded of the joy that we're to have? How often do you need to have someone come alongside you and say, hey, cheer up. This is not our home anyways. Cheer up. We have a promise of eternal life. Have joy in your spirit because this isn't what all there is. There's so much more than this. Remember, Paul is in prison when he's, reading, when he's writing this. So let's read this verse again really slowly. Paul says, whatever happens... My dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never, I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it. Why? To safeguard your faith. Hmm. Ever thought about that? Ever thought about why we need to have joy as a safeguard of our faith? Can I suggest that worship is a key helper when your faith is at risk? Worship is a key component of keeping your joy. And I'll just tell you that um, I find it very comforting. I come in here on mo- every, almost every morning early before whatever, before I do anything else, and I come in here and I turn on some worship music. And I'm not always joyful when I come in here, I'll be honest with you. 
But you know what? It, it's not long after that worship music's playing. And, and here's a key. Guys, this is the key that we have being a Pentecostal church. When I can sing in the Spirit, and I can let my spirit just take, go to new heights that aren't based upon my feelings, and I can begin to sing in the Spirit what happens to my heart, it becomes joyful. There comes a sense of peace that comes in. A sense of, it's going to be okay, Mike. God's got this. And now I can continue on in my life knowing that my joy is not the thing that's going to... um, I'm not going to lose life over a lack of joy or a lack of happiness. My joy is my sustainer because it gives me that confidence. And I don't have to live on an emotional roller coaster. Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not perfect in that, and neither are you, but I don't need to have highs and lows of life. I can steady out. I can become confident in that it's not about what I feel that is about where I'm going. It's about what I know about where I'm going. And when I have a relationship through the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, that gives me a confidence to know that I can live above my circumstances. I don't have to let a hand problem hurt me. I don't have to let an emotional problem or a financial issue or relational issues. I don't need to let those things in life get me down like they do without relationships. They do. I'll get that. So Paul continues now after talking about joy. Now he takes a little turn and now he talks in our text to talk about false teachers that have worked their way into the church and they're twisting God's truth and to bring a confusion and disruption in the body. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 through 4, it says, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. Nope, we put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. So what Paul is saying here is that there is a contingent of false teachers that have worked their way into the church of Philippi. And these are just, these are not just, these are Jewish false teachers. And you know, it's interesting because we shouldn't be surprised at this. Because whenever the truth of God's word is taught, there will always be a contingent of compromising messages that are to try to take the power of his truth away. So don't be surprised at this. Don't be surprised even in this church or any other church that's truly teaching the word that there is going to come those people with false messages that are going to come along to try to distract from the power of God's word. So Paul is taking this head on with his church here and he's warning them not to be caught off guard and snared in by their false teaching. And it's interesting that Paul even calls them dogs. He calls them dogs describing the false teachers. Now, in our culture, dogs are very popular. I mean, sometimes people take care of their dogs better than their their children or their husband, which is hard to believe. (laughs) But, you know, dogs just, it's it's just, I think, a sign of the end times, actually, how dogs and pets have have just taken over. And it's really not good at all. But... um, I'm not saying you shouldn't love your dog. If you got a dog, great. I'm glad you have a dog. Rip's got a couple dogs. Got two of them. Well, you got double love I got, brother. But you got two of them. 
But going back to the, to the culture of Paul's day, dogs were not pets. They were actually scavenging animals that would roam the streets and they were wild. And actually they were something to, to be avoided. Because when a person saw a dog on the street, they shouldn't go try to pet it. <laughs> because that dog's probably going to bite their hand off because the dog's looking for something to eat. They're wild animals at that time. And because of this, the Jews would often reference the Gentiles as scavenging dogs. That the Jews would reference Gentiles as dogs, as a negative characteristic of who they are. And they were to be of people to be avoided, and they were to be considered as unclean and unrighteous and to be very dangerous. But it's interesting that Paul here isn't referring to Gentiles when he says, beware of those dogs. He's referring to Jewish false teachers. So obviously Paul doesn't have a lot of good to think about these guys. Paul's saying that they are mutilators of the flesh in direct comparison to circumcision. Now we need to stop here and have a better understanding of what circumcision really meant to the Jewish people and to what it meant in regards to the Old Testament covenant because we don't often think of circumcision as a big deal. But it is to the Old Testament. So what's the significance of Old Testament circumcision? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, God appeared to Abram and changed his name to Abraham, establishing a covenant with him. And this was an unconditional covenant, everlasting, in which God pledged to greatly multiply Abraham's descendants and make him into a great nation. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 17, the first few verses. And in the context here, that God introduced now a physical male circumcision as a sign of this covenant relationship with Abraham and all of his descendants. So the Greek word here for circumcision means to cut around. And it's a careful and intentional act of removing unnecessary excess flesh. There's also a health benefit associated with this because there's flesh that's not necessary to live. And so in a relationship to the covenant that God is making with the Jewish people, this is a physical sign that it's going to be permanent in their relationship. And it's also an outward sign that they belong to the covenant people of God. And so God uses this physical circumcision as a separator. In other words, it says, you are set apart for me because of the covenant that I've made with Abraham. Therefore, your physical circumcision now is a proof of who you are and who you're not. So that's the physical side of circumcision that goes back to our Old Testament teaching. But spiritually speaking today, circumcision of the heart represents a cutting away of sin, pride, and all other impurities that are damaging to a spiritual condition. I go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I go back to, what is he talking about? Throw off everything that hinders and the sin. So there are things in our life that are not sinful, but yet they're hindrances to us. 
And so the writer of Hebrews says we are to throw off everything that hinders, everything that would distract us from following God with our full heart. Everything, it's not even sinful, but if it's not magnifying your relationship with Christ, then throw it off. Cut it off. Circumcise your heart is what he's really saying here. There's a reason why I'm going into such detail because God is using this as an indicator of a future act of the life of Jesus and now in his death that he provides a marker of differentiation for believers in the New Testament time, the time that we're living in. And this act points us towards the future purification of Christ and the relationship that we have with him. Remember, this is about relationship that Jesus would come to be a perfect requirement of, of righteousness. He would fulfill the law and that this would re- represent a spiritual circumcision of the heart and that we would become separated unto God through the righteousness of Christ as we circumcise our heart, we're following Christ because he's a perfect representation of God. He is God in human flesh. So circumcision What's so important about it and what's so meaningful about it is that it can't be faked. It can't be counterfeited. You are either circumcised or you're not. (laughs) There is no halfway here, right? You are either circumcised in your heart or you're not. And it can't be counterfeited on a spiritual level or a physical level. You see, I can fake my relationship with God to you. I can fake, I can be a pretty good counterfeit if I wanted to be. But God knows my heart. God sees my heart before he ever sees my actions. He sees my motivations. He knows my heart's condition. And I might be able to fool you, but I can't fool him. That's why circumcision is so, such an important thing. And here's a telltale sign. When you know false teaching is coming in, into your life or anywhere, because when, it, when anything comes in to twist something that God ordains as good, and takes it and makes it evil or takes it and and compromises what God's truth is, that it's damaging to to the relationship with people and also, more importantly, to the relationship with God. That's a sign of false teaching because it's taking something of God's truth and it's twisting it. It gives just just enough to, to suck you in, but it doesn't go to the full of what the truth is really supposed to be. And that's why Paul refers to these Jewish false teachers as mutilators of the flesh because, see, they weren't carefully cutting off unnecessary flesh here in this, in their context and their teaching. No, rather they were to mutilate, to mutilate means to cut off or cut down. It doesn't do anything to improve. It cuts down and cuts away of something that's useful. So Old Testament worshipers in that time, they understood this better than we do. Because people in that day were worshipers of false gods. Baal at that time was a god that they worshipped quite often. And in their worship of Baal, they would often cut themselves. And their blood would be a sacrifice on the Baal. And it would draw them, supposedly draw them into a closer relationship with a false god. And so they understood what it means to, to, to mutilate your body because they did that quite often in their temple worship. So they understood what that circumcision clearly is much more than maybe what we do. And Paul goes in verse chapter three or verse two, he says, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, those people who do evil. And they say that you must be circumcised to be saved. 
So not only is mutilating damaging to the body, but it also does great damage to the spirit because it is a false form of salvation. Hear me. It is a false form of salvation. And there's a lot of things that happen in our life today that would give us a false form of salvation that we would have what we think would be eternal life, but there is no eternal life here. When they mutilate the flesh here without using it as a proper circumcision of the heart, it might appear to be godly, but it's not. And it's given people a false sense of security, and that's why God hates it so much. Because it might make people think that they're on the right path, doing the right things, but yet there's no eternal life. So Paul takes this as a great opportunity to prove to the people that God is not looking for physical separation, but rather he's looking for spiritual separation. And that's why this is such an important teaching for us today. Right? So verse 3 says, let's continue on. He says in verse, in verse 3, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. For those who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. Meaning here that the ones that are truly separated from the world, those that are really worshiping, are not worshiping through counterfeit means. They might have an, they might have an appearance of godliness, but there's no power therein. They may look like they're worshiping, but because they don't really have a relationship, they're worshiping through outward appearances, they're worshiping through the flesh, and there is no power in that. Does that remind you of a verse that maybe James might have wrote? Because, or I'm sorry, Timothy, Paul might have wrote to Timothy, because in today's world, you know, we may not be talking about circumcision today, but there's a lot of other false teachers that are coming in that are giving, giving us a compromised message. Let's just talk about how good we are. Let's talk about self-help talk topics. Let's just talk about how we can feel better about ourselves. Not better people, but how we can feel better. It's so important that I want you to feel good when you come to church. I want you to feel like you're okay. I want you to be okay. I don't care how you feel. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm helping you here. I'm here to make you be good. Right? Me too. It's not about my feelings. It's about my obedience. It's about doing the things that really are truthful and right because those are the things where my joy comes from. Those are the, that's where my relationship comes from regardless of my feelings. Now, hopefully there's going to come a time when the feelings match your actions, and that's a great thing. But we have to not let our feelings dictate. We must let our actions control our feelings. So Paul says to watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who try to make you, make you who say you must be circumcised. He says because they will only lead you to a false teaching. And this is where Paul wrote to Timothy about today's world where we're living today, right? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is one of my favorite chapters, books of the Bible, Second Timothy, because this is Paul's last testament, his last letter to Timothy. He says, but mark this, this Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, 
boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Have we just described today's philosophy? Have we described today's society right now? And then verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power, he says, have nothing to do with such people. This is how Paul is describing those in the church in the last days. That's where we're living. But verse 5 says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You see, no one in the world portrays a godly form unless they're trying to fool people. Because God's not popular today. You can be very, you can be very politically incorrect, actually, if you're trying to be a popular person, if you're using God as your process. God is not politically correct in the lives of people. So Paul says, have nothing to do with these kind of people. And that's how Paul is describing the dogs of his day as we're describing them today. And both the people in today's world and people in Paul's world They only bring harm and destruction if we get too close to them. Now, I'm not saying that we don't associate with ungodly people. Don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, you go to coffee, you work with people, just don't take on their form. You be the light of the world that you're to be, and you be the influencer. Don't let them influence you, but you be the influencer, and that's a good thing. Amen? All right, so now Paul talks about confidence. No confidence in the flesh. There's nothing a person can do of their own activities that can make them right with God. Let's go back to our text, Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. He says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. Here he says, we put no confidence in human effort or the flesh, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts. And then Paul goes on in that chapter, in that verse, to describe his that he's being the Hebrew of Hebrews. And he doesn't do this as a way to brag about himself. That's not the point of this passage. He's not saying that this is how good he is. What he really wants to say is that God isn't impressed with our efforts to live a perfect life. Listen. God's not impressed with your efforts to live a life of righteousness. He's not impressed with it, yet he requires us to pursue it. (laughs) He requires you to pursue it, though it doesn't impress him, because that's just our standard of living is what it should be. But it's kind of the the question that we, the old age-old question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Which comes first? Does my righteousness come first, or my life pursuing righteousness come first? So let me ask this question. For what purpose should a person live a life pursuing righteousness? For what purpose? Is it to gain salvation and eternal life? Am I living a righteous life to gain life? Or am I living a righteous life as a result of the salvation and eternal life that I have? Which one? The latter one. Because if I was to do it, with the former one, then it would be a form of my flesh working through my salvation, through my flesh man, not a working as my working out my salvation that we talked about the last couple of weeks ago um, with a spiritual condition because I'm working out my salvation 
not to have salvation, but as a result of my salvation that I work on it. Let's let Paul answer this question. He re- he answers it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, 11. And this is the, very, let, me, let me say this. This is a really important question because a lot of people get it wrong. A lot of people misunderstand why are we supposed to live a righteous life. And most of them look at it and say, well, I live a righteous life so that I can be saved. It's a life of works. It's a life of flesh. And Paul makes it very clear here that that's not. Because he says, I once, beginning of verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ. He's talking about relationship. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I can gain Christ. And he goes on, and become one with him. Relationship, unity. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteousness through faith in Christ. Do you see the difference? His flesh man would say that I'm gaining my my audience with God through my righteousness, where my spiritual life says that your righteousness, you become righteous because of your faith, because of your relationship with God. There's a big difference there. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You see, there was a time when Paul took pride in his pursuit of his religion. Right? According to the passage we just read, he once thought that these things were pursuits of value. But here's the thing. You see, when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything changed. When Jesus appeared to him in that light that blinded him, and he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. That moment of revelation changed Paul's life entirely. And can I say that we need to have that kind of moment of salvation in our lives? We need to have that time when we come to our life where we say, you know what? That's changing me. It changed me, and it's going to continue to change me as long as I live because now my focus is on Jesus, not on me and what I do. So now Paul counts everything he's done in his own ability as garbage in comparison to what Christ has done for him. Now, where was I? Yeah, there you go. You see, Paul understands that it's an experience of relational experience with Christ that matters. It's not about what he knows It's not about what he understands. It's about the relationship. It's about what happened to him on that road to Damascus. My Bible commentary says it this way. Paul's greatest longing was to know Christ and to experience his personal presence and companionship in a more intimate way. Nothing else in Paul's life even compared to this this passionately earnest desire, even to the point of calling it rubbish. You see, Paul had it all. He had head knowledge. He had all the rules down. He had the respect of Jewish leaders. He was in the up-and-coming class of rulership in the church at that time, but he knew it wasn't enough. 
In our once a night studies here, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going through what Solomon talked about. And Solomon, we know, was the wisest man on earth. That God asked Solomon when he was a young boy, Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon asked for wisdom so that he could discern, he could judge, he could lead. And God blessed him with that. But even in all of Solomon's wealth, power, prestige, wisdom, sensual pleasures, I mean, he had it all. There was nothing that Solomon, there was something that Solomon lacked that this world could not offer. And he didn't know what it was. And as a result of that, he was restless and he was discontent and he considered everything a chasing after the wind and meaningless. It was not a good end for Solomon at that point because he didn't have a relationship with God as much as he had with the things of the world. And what that means is that he worshiped the creation more than the creator. He worshiped the creation more than the creator. And how easy is that for us to do? So I want to end this, the last couple of verses here. Paul says, I want to know Christ, and I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one day or one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul differed from Solomon in that Paul understood that chasing after a personal relationship with Christ was more important than experiencing the benefits of what we can gain on earth. So when Paul's chasing after this relationship with Christ, he recognized that the only way to share in Christ's resurrection is to first share in his dying. Sounds a little strange to say. We don't like to talk about dying, do we? Jackie, would you come, please? But hear me on this one. One can't be resurrected if one first isn't dead. One can't be resurrected if one first doesn't die. The flesh man wants to live. You see, anything that's living has a natural desire to want to continue to live, right? That flesh man, what, when I say flesh man, what does that mean? It's that, it's that the way we were born. It's that sinful nature within us. It's that thing within us that even as a young child, one of the first words I learned or my, the kids learned is no, and then mine. <laughs> it's mine. Nobody had to teach them how to say mine. It was just natural. That's just their flesh man. That's what we're talking about, that sinful nature. And that wants to live. And that will work hard to live in a man or a woman. But the spirit man recognizes that as long as that sinful nature lives in me, there's no possibility of a spiritual resurrection. Something has to die. Something in me has to die. If I'm going to be resurrected, then something must die. And that's what Paul's talking about. If we're ever going to experience that physical resurrection in the end, we must first experience a spiritual death to the things that would keep me from a physical resurrection. Does that make sense? I hope I'm not talking in circles here. But I think that's where the life of a true believer and a professing believer can take different directions. You see, a person to die to the old sinful nature, it's not in what we don't do as much as what we do now instead. In other words, 
I can be very legalistic. And I was, have been, grown up, taught how to be legalistic. But now, as we move from this, we move more into a relationship with Christ. And now it's more about what I do do, not what I don't do. Make sense? Fill my heart, fill my life with things that are good, the, the good of God, not just necessarily stay away from the bad things of the world. And that's basically the change of heart that's required if we're going to have a physical and a spiritual resurrection at the end. You see, what's happening here is that we're being changed from the inside out. And this change lasts for an eternity. Why? Because that's where the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit lives in me. When I ask Jesus to come into my heart, what am I doing? I'm inviting him, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God through Jesus to live inside of me. And now that creates an, an, an internal change in me that is seen through an external manifestation because things change, but they're changing from the inside out. I'm not trying to change it from the outside in. See the difference? Big difference. The outside in won't last. The inside out will last forever because I'm dying to that flesh man. And I'm allowing that spiritual man to be resurrected in my life. And now that gives me an eternal life because it changes me forever. And that says that I don't place confidence in the flesh. I don't put confidence in the flesh. I put it in the spirit. Do you remember at the very beginning, it said we asked, where does joy come from? Listen, our joy comes from this inner transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit because it gives us a new character. It gives us a new creation from the inside. And then that is what lasts forever because now it's not just who I want to be, it's who I become inside because the power of the Holy Spirit lives in me. And that gives me resurrection. And that's why Paul can say, I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Who wants to be resurrected when you die? Amen. Does anybody not want to be resurrected? So to be resurrected, you must die. How many want to die? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, dying is one of those things where I'm not so sure I want to die. I can remember having conversations with my dad when he was passing. He had no fear of where he was going. He was just a little nervous about the process. I never died before. I don't know what it's going to feel like but we can have great hope and a great assurance of where I am that first breath thereafter. That's what we're talking about. That's the joy that comes from relationship that doesn't come from flesh. So I put no confidence in the flesh, but I put all my confidence in the joy that comes through a revelation knowledge of who Jesus Christ is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this day for what you are doing for us today. I thank you, Lord, for your resurrection knowledge. God, that that experience of relationship. Lord, that we would slay today the death man, the flesh man, that we'd put him to death so that we can have a spiritual resurrection that comes from within. That thing that rises up within me, that changes me from who I was to who I become the righteousness of Christ through the power of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit living within me. And I pray, Lord, that you would just make that fresh and new for all of us today. 
Maybe this morning, maybe you don't have that relationship. Maybe you want it. Maybe you haven't had it before. You can get it. You can gain it through Jesus. For those that have it, maybe you've lost it a little bit. You can get it back through a resurrection of that relationship. Again, through the, it's all through Christ. It's not through me, not through any man, not through any teaching. It's all through Jesus. So, Father, forgive us today. Come into our hearts, come into our lives. Renew us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing the song that Tom and Jack are playing. I have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Sounds like Sunday school. (laughs) Father, I just pray you go with us today and help us, Lord, to take that joy with us as we go out of this place, as we go into our homes, our place of working this week. I pray, God, your joy would ride with us. Lord, let us chew on this message throughout this week and let us put no, no confidence in the flesh, but all our confidence is in you because you are our Savior and our Lord. And we worship you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Have a blessed day.